Our epistle reading for this second Sunday of Advent comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. Hear now God's holy word. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and we give you thanks for your word and we pray that we would be faithful to it today, that we would hear it and we would receive it and we would rejoice and uh, delight in being your people who are on your calendar, who are on your time schedule. And, and we pray that you grow us in patience, uh, build us up and strengthen us in all these ways we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. In the late 1990s, NASA launched the Mars Climate Orbiter to study the atmosphere and the uh, and the weather of the red planet. The satellite sailed out toward Mars for almost a year, and when it got close to the planet, it fired its engine right on time, sailed around the other side of the planet, but never came around to be seen again. The Mars orbiter crashed onto the far side of Mars. After years of planning and after hundreds of millions of dollars, all the effort and the work of skilled engineers and scientists, the orbiter had crashed without completing its mission. NASA went looking for answers and as the scientists picked their way meticulously through the data, they determined that the culprit was a simple conversion error. NASA does all of their measurements in the metric system. Uh, meter, centimeter, millimeter. But one of the contractors who was hired to work on this project was using US customary units. Inches, half inches, hogsheads, bushels, you know, hectares, you know, all these. And, and years of work and hundreds of millions of dollars went crashing to the surface of Mars because someone did the right calculation using the wrong units. And as you can imagine, this happens quite a bit. We live in a world with two different ways of measuring things. We have the metric system and we have the, the US customary system. And I like to joke that there are two kinds of countries. There are those who use the metric system and those who've been to the moon. And so, uh, <coughs> which one is right? Uh, but in this case, it failed. Um, and there are other times where a conversion error has yielded disastrous results. In the 1980s, an Air Canada Boeing 767, which was that company's first metric aircraft, it ran out of fuel in the middle of a passenger flight because a ground crew had made a mathematical error converting pounds to kilograms of fuel. 
Happily, the pilots were able to glide the plane to a tiny airstrip, and only two people had minor injuries. But again, a conversion error caused disaster. One more, because these are just so much fun. Uh, about 15 years ago, the Los Angeles Zoo loaned a 75-year-old Galapagos turtle named Clarence. I didn't know you could borrow a turtle uh, or, a, or a tortoise or a 75-year-old one at that point. But the, uh, the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program at Moore Park College in California borrowed Clarence, the 75-year-old uh, tortoise. Uh, Clarence was enormous, and the zoo warned the college that he required a habitat suitable for an animal weighing 250 kilograms. Well, the students at Moore Park College thought they said 250 pounds, which, if you do the quick conversion, that's about only half of the tortoise's weight. And so in the first night in his new home, Clarence completely wrecked his habitat. He tore down the fence around the enclosure and he was found the next morning hanging out on the lawn of the aviary, perhaps contemplating his next feat of destruction. You know, as soon as he could get over there, he would uh, wreck something else. Now there's bound to be conflict and confusion living in a world with at least two different ways of measuring things. We aren't even speaking the same language when we're talking uh, the, the U.S. customary units and the, and the metric system. It's a different language. We're living with a different measuring stick. Likewise, you and I also live in a world where there are at least two or three different ways of measuring time. One way of measuring time and reckoning with time in history is a purely secular measurement of time, where time is organized primarily around commerce and the state, the, the marketplace and the nation really run our calendar and run our time. You have work weeks broken up by weekends and you pepper it with a few national celebrations and a few sentimental observations. And the individual within the system marks the days and the months through the drudgery of work. We just work five days and we just hope to get to the weekend. Or if, if we get lucky, we get that occasional three-day, that precious three-day weekend. But to the individual, the world of a thousand years ago is largely irrelevant. People back then were ignorant and filthy and, and benighted. And a thousand years from now, well, that's just fantasy land. That's, you know, Star Trek or something. I don't really have anything to do with that either. It's post-apocalyptic wasteland time. But, but all that really matters to me is now and what I've got to get to Monday morning and the stack of work on my desk or the things I have to do at work. And if I'm thinking about the future, it's not about the future of the world or the future of my sixth generation of, of grandchild, it's my own future. What am I going to do in retirement? When am I going to get to, you know, just hang out and, and do nothing for a while? What matters most, though, is right now and the bottom line. That's pretty much, and I, I know there are variations and different people may express themselves different ways, but that's, that's, a, that's kind of a secular way of thinking about time and the time that we have to spend. Uh, there's another way and it's the pagan view of time, which is most often seen in, in thoroughly pagan cultures uh, like, you know, India or 
um, uh, cultures in, in uh, third world countries where uh, they're, they're just sold out to, to paganism still, where everything just repeats itself. There's no beginning, middle, and end to the story of history. We just have the circle of life. There is only the now. There's no recorded history because nothing ever really was important enough to record. There's nothing worth recording. You have legends. You have folklore, but it's all kind of timeless. The, the, the folk stories, they could have happened yesterday, they could have happened a million years ago, it, it doesn't really matter. And it doesn't matter whether it really happened at all. It, it, it doesn't matter uh, whether uh, the, you know, these, these fables happen, what matters and what's important is the moral. Now that's the pagan view of time. And then of course there's the Christian view. Of time, We saw this just a little bit last week, and what I'm doing this week and last week in this season of Advent where we're thinking about time and eschatology and the future, I'm just taking these couple of Sundays, and I appreciate you humoring me, or I'm just kind of shotgunning some thoughts from the scriptures about history and about time. And I, and I pray it all hangs together, but if it doesn't, I'll, I'll pray the Holy Spirit synthesizes it for you, and you can come back and tell me what I just said, and, and maybe you can make uh, it make sense to me. But uh, we saw last week the Christian perspective on history is that God is the sovereign author of history. History is a true story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. God is working his purposes out in human history. And he's changing the world by working with his people. He steers history from the center. He calls out a group of people. He loves them. He covenants with them. He, he uh, uh, blesses them. And, and, then, and then through his dealings with this people, he steers and shapes the whole world and brings all the nations flowing into what he's doing at the center. God acts in history. And moreover... All of his acts have dates on them. There's nothing in the Bible that you could say, well, that's just a timeless truth. It doesn't really matter if it really happened or not. It could have happened a thousand years ago or a million years ago. It wouldn't make a difference. No, absolutely not. All of, all of God's acts have dates on them. Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Well, when was that? Well, go look it up and you'll see that's when Jesus was born. Um, uh, the, the temple was built in the fourth year of Solomon. God brought his people out of Egypt 430 years after Abraham entered the promised land. Well, well when was that? Well, you go back and you look at Abraham and you see God made his covenant with Abraham when Ishmael was 13 and Abraham was 99. And you can take Abraham's life and the ages of his ancestors and you work back and count back to the flood. The point is that the Bible has chron chronological markers because the history that God is teaching isn't just this collection of fables that don't have any roots in history or the real world. No, God is interacting with the human race in human history. And so, so this gives us a different appreciation of time and history than the pagan or the secular atheist. Time, if you think about it, it really frustrates the secular mind because time can't be controlled. It can't be contained. Ordinarily, if I want to study a Galapagos turtle, well, I've got him and I've got him there and I can look at him from front to back and I can put him on a table and I can even use uh, imagery to look at what's inside of him. And I can pretty much tell you everything that's going on with the turtle. I can't do that with time. I can't see the beginning from the end. I can't hold time in my hand. 
I can't move through time. I can't travel through it except in one direction at one pace. So, so I don't have a handle on time like I do uh, uh, the, the other things that we, that we study. We inhabit time as Christians in covenant with one who knows the end from the beginning. The Christian perspective on time is that God is sovereign and loving and directing our time. I want to call you back, and I'm going to hop around to a few verses this morning in a few different places, but if, uh, if you want to join me in Psalm 39, the psalmist here talks about this very thing. Uh, he says in Psalm 39, verse 4, Yahweh, make me to know my end, and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as hand breadths. Again, that's a, that's a different unit of measurement, isn't it? This is, this is how long my life is, a hand breadth. Not, a, not even a span, that's a span, not, not even a cubit, but a hand breadth. You've made my, you made my days, you made my life this much, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and he doesn't know who will gather them. Who's going to inherit all this stuff that he heaps up? Now that's, in, in that psalm, the psalmist reflects both the secular and, and pagan view of time that it's, it's just a vapor and there's no movement and there's no beginning or end. And, and yet, and here's my life before you, Yahweh, that I know my life has a beginning and an end and my days are in the palm of your hand. Uh, so the Christian has uh, necessarily with this perspective in place, the Christian has a different way of marking time. Our day, this day, we don't start the week with football day or brunch day, or shopping day, or hunting day, we start our week with the Lord's day. The first day of the week is the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. Today, the Lord visits us. He cleanses us. He takes us apart. He puts us back together. He renews covenant with us at his table, and he sends us out to work. The way that we spend this day, and the way that we, the way that we start the week sets the tone for the whole week because you and I have a different way of reckoning the week from the pagan and the secular. Because we do this, your week and my week takes on a different rhythm. It takes on a different flavor, a different measurement. We're using this measurement. They're using a completely different measurement. In addition to the weekly Lord's Day, we have other celebrations and feast days and observations that give a rhythm to our months and years. We mark our time not simply by the, the, the secular days of national remembrance. We mark the passage of time by the most important events in human history, the events in the life of the Lord Jesus. So the Lord's Day gives our week a particular rhythm, and the Christian calendar gives a rhythm to the seasons, the months, the years of our lives. And we walk through these celebrations and these feasts and these remembrances, and give, it gives the year its own kind of rhythm. And it gives you and me a different perspective on the passage of time through the years as we grow through these liturgies of time, developing the good habits of feasting and rejoicing. We're, we're matured by this into a Christian perspective on time. 
it's not a peripheral footnote of the Bible that God gave his people in Israel a festival calendar. It was, it was a key component of how he grew up his people. And he, he gave them this calendar and he said, I want you to keep the Sabbaths. I want you to keep these remembrances and these observations and these feast days. This was how he matured his people by giving them a sense of time. So we grow in our understanding and our appreciation of time as we mature. For just a moment, think about the way small children view time, particularly the way they view a day. For a small child, a day is so long. It's, it's broken up into parts. You have morning breakfast time and and then I'm talking about pre, preschool children. You've got breakfast time and the morning just goes on and on. And you, when is lunch going to get here? And lunch finally comes and you eat, you eat your peanut butter and your jelly. And then, and then you take a nap and, and your day is broken up. You take this long, interminable 20-minute nap, you know, this 40-minute nap, you know, so long. I got to go... I got to go be quiet for a while. Then you wake up and you've got the afternoon and the afternoon has its own adventures and its own delights. And then dad comes home and, and you eat supper and then, and then it's getting close to bedtime. Uh, for, for children, their days are long and they're broken into parts. And, and days are, a, are, are an eternity. So that means Christmas never, ever, ever gets here. You know, I feel like Christmas, we got like, what, three minutes before Christmas now? Are you done? But my son is like, Christmas is not coming this year. It's, it's not going to come because it's like two weeks away. It's, it's never going to get here. And that's the way it is for children. But as you mature, you start to feel the day as a, as a unit of time. And then you grow up more and you start to pick up on the rhythms of the week. Tuesday feels different from Thursday, doesn't it? Saturday just has its own its own flavor, its own, its own rhythm. We grow into that, and then, and then we start picking up on the rhythm of the years. Now, years start to go by more quickly, and when you get a handle on how short a year really is, and you get a handle on the rhythm of a year, your time sense starts to broaden out, and you start to, you start to kind of get a hang of it, and then you die. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> you, 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 we don't live long enough to pick up on the cycle of 50 years or 100 years. What's, what is 100 years supposed to feel like? What's a century? Maybe we were supposed to live 1,000 years. You know, before the flood, uh, people are bumping up against that 1,000-year uh, time, uh, uh, that lifespan. That's how long people lived. But the world changed with the flood, and now we only live to about 70 or 80 years now. But think, if you could live to be 1,000 do you think maybe you could pick up on the rhythm of a jubilee? A jubilee is about 50 years, right? No, it is 50 years. It's 49 and the 50th year is a jubilee. Do you think that if you lived a thousand years, you'd start to pick up on the rhythm of a jubilee? Do you think you'd start to pick up maybe as you get like to be 950 years old, you'd start to pick up on the rhythm of a century. You'd get the hang of it. Well, we never get old enough in this life to get a sense of this for ourselves which is why we must know and be in communion with the eternal one. We are impatient and we feel like things are never going to happen and they're never going to get here because we're like small children who are living in the middle of a time that feels like it's so long and it's so stretched out in every direction. But God knows what he's doing and he holds time in his hand and our days in his hand. The Bible has a lot to say about patience and timing and waiting on the Lord as a sign of maturity 
and faithfulness. These are the themes of the season of Advent, waiting on the day of the Lord, waiting on the Lord to fulfill his promises, exercising patience when things don't line up between how the world is supposed to be and how it is. Patience in that rub, patience in waiting on the Father to send the Son to set everything right. If patience is a mark of maturity, and patience can only be learned by waiting, and patience is something we grow into as we gain a sense of the passage of time, then the converse is also true. Impatience is immaturity. And if we are habitually impatient people, it's because we haven't grown to appreciate or understand God's sense of time. We don't have a perspective on the length of time that it takes God to accomplish his purposes or the length of time that he likes. Teaching teaching patience, waiting on the promise and the deliverance of God and waiting on the coming of the Lord Jesus, that's the thrust of 2 Peter from which our our uh, epistle reading comes on the second Sunday of Advent. So I want to turn your attention back to Second Peter. If you ran over to Psalms with me, um, check check out and and follow with me through Second Peter. Teaching patience is the message of Second Peter. Peter starts the letter by reminding the readers of of what he trusts they already know. He says, I trust you already know the reliability of my testimony regarding the coming and the power of the Lord Jesus. I'm telling you, this is Peter saying, I'm telling you, Jesus is coming just as he said he would. And just as he said he would in the promise that we read in the gospel of Mark last week. So Peter, Peter starts in uh, verse 12. And let me just kind of pick up here of chapter one, chapter one, verse 12. He says, for this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you will always have a reminder of these things after my decease." For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There he's denying the pagan view of time. These are not, these are not timeless fables. This is history that I'm telling you. But we're eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, when you read Peter's epistle, it's evident that what he's dealing with here are some doubts coming from the people. They're getting restless about whether the Lord is actually coming in judgment against Jerusalem and the temple, just as he said he would. And the answer to this, Peter says, is that Advent is going to happen. This coming of the Lord Jesus is going to happen. And the reason that I can assure you of this is because I was on the holy mountain when Jesus was transfigured and the voice came from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, if that confuses you or that doesn't hang together for you, uh, you're in good company. I'm thinking, why, why does this, how is the Mount of Transfiguration evidence that the Lord Jesus is coming just as he said? How is, how is the transfiguration proof that Jesus is going to keep his promises? Well, when you go back to the Gospels, in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, 
and Luke, all three Gospels that tell us about the transfiguration, the verse, and you can check this out for yourself this afternoon, the verse directly preceding the Mount of Transfiguration event, the verse preceding that is Jesus saying to his apostles that there are some standing here who will not see death until they see Jesus coming in his glory, bringing in the power of the kingdom of God. So, so what happens is Jesus tells his apostles, I will return before this generation is out, before this is passed. And then immediately you have the transfiguration. So what Peter is doing here is he's joining two things that Jesus apparently joined, that Jesus put together. Jesus said, I'm going to return before this generation is over. And then you have the transfiguration. Now, what was the transfiguration? What's happening there? It wasn't primarily a, a revelation of Jesus's divinity. It wasn't, it wasn't just a display of his special gifts or calling. The transfiguration was a manifestation of the power and the glory that Jesus will return with when he comes again in the lifetime of the apostles to pour out the judgment that he tells them that he will. The transfiguration is a confirmation of the particular prophetic word, I will return before the end of this generation. So, so here's the background of 2 Peter. People are saying, Jesus isn't coming back. We can't depend upon him to come back and end this old world the way that he said he would. Uh, Judaism is still persecuting us. We're still getting flogged in the synagogues. Those who are, who are holding the positions of power in the temple and in the Jewish courts are still being abusive toward Christians. When is Jesus going to come and vindicate us? When is he going to come and say to that mountain, the mountain on which the temple rests, that mountain be thrown into the sea. That's the mountain we want thrown into the sea. When is this prayer going to be answered? And Peter says, now I want you to remember something. As he writes this letter, he says, I saw his majesty on the top of that mountain. And that, that majesty, that transfiguration was a confirmation of his promise to come and do what he said. Now, now that's a summary of chapter one. Chapter two, Jesus is talking, I'm sorry, Peter is talking about how the Lord loves to deliver his people. This is a theme we saw a lot in 2 Samuel, so I've, I've already developed it for you that, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel, um, that we've just studied. We just studied 1 Samuel, and we've seen over and over how God loves to deliver his people. But I always want to make sure that we emphasize that because in Reformed churches in particular, it needs emphasizing. It's a misapplication of the doctrine of election to think or to worry whether or not I'm elect in some hidden decree of God, whether he really loves me, whether he has really chosen me. That's, that's a misapplication of the doctrine of election. It, it, it turns God into a, a miser, as if, as if there are these, these saints who love the Lord Jesus that he's going to turn away, as if that were even, even possible. And so Peter spends the second chapter of, of this epistle saying the Lord loves to deliver his people. And he demonstrates this repeatedly, joyfully saving and delivering and rescuing his people repeatedly. Peter says God has this way of rescuing his people right out of the middle of destruction and judgment. He rescued Noah from the flood. He rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Did Lot deserve to be rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah? No, but, but God did anyway. So you can rest assured, he tells his audience here. You can rest assured that when Jesus comes to meet out judgment on the temple and the city of Jerusalem, that he will distinguish between those who deserve judgment and those who do not. That's, that's part of his promise. 
He doesn't recklessly pour out his wrath. Those who are snatched away in judgment will be the ones for whom judgment is due. So two women will be grinding at a mill. One will be taken, the other one left. The two men in the field, one will be taken, the other left. This snatching away in judgment is precision, surgical meeting out of his purposes. Again, everything that Peter says is rooted in the promise that Jesus makes in the gospels that all this is gonna happen in this first uh, generation after his coming. So you get to chapter three and Peter repeats the complaints that he's hearing. There are mockers who have come, who've said Jesus is not coming back. They're they're complaining. It's been three decades or more by, by this time. Some of the apostles have died by now. So they say, well, Jesus must not be keeping his promise. Peter says at the very start of our epistle reading this morning that the Lord counts time differently than we do. What does he say? Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord has a, 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 different, a, a different way of, of reckoning with time. He's, he's not on your schedule. You're on his schedule. And he says, if you're going to be godly, then if you're going to be like him, then you've got to have a different perspective on time than the secular or the pagan. But by saying this, Peter is not ignoring the time frame that Jesus gave to his own prophecies. Throughout, throughout this epistle, Peter has been defending the prophecy that Jesus would come back within this generation. So Peter repeats firmly, God is not slack concerning his promises. He will keep his promise. And then Peter describes the judgment that's coming. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Thieves come in the dark. They come to plunder when you're sleeping. And Yahweh has already demonstrated that this is how he's treated other nations. When the Lord came upon Egypt, when did he come? It was at night and he came to plunder. He took the firstborn of the Egyptians and then his people go out with great reward, with great plunder. When the day of the Lord comes to Babylon, remember it happens at night. Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall. God sends the Persians to conquer them. Cyrus The the Persian plunders the Babylonians and sends Jews back home with the plunder to rebuild the temple and the city. It's happened before, and Peter says it's going to happen like that again. The the Lord Jesus is coming once again in order to plunder the old world of Jerusalem and the temple. He's going to treat Jerusalem like Egypt and Babylon. He's going to plunder the temple and the city in order to destroy them. And then Peter says the heavens and the elements of the earth will be burned or, or depending on your translation, it may say revealed or exposed. He's not talking about the physical universe is going to be burned, but the elements, what are, what are elements, the elements of the temple, the temple is the heavenly environment on earth. The vessels and the furnishings of the temple are the elements that are going to be destroyed with intense fire and heat. And out of that is going to come the new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells, as Peter says. Now, now if you pull these verses out and read them in isolation from the rest of the New Testament or the rest of the Bible, you might come up with any number of conclusions about what's being said here. But when you put it in the context of the question that Peter's answering in chapter one, where people are asking, where is the promise of his coming? He said his coming was near, that it would, would be at the doors. He said in Revelation, quickly, I'm coming quickly. Uh, The day is at hand. So where is the promise? When is he going to keep that promise he made right before the transfiguration? That's the issue. And that puts parameters and constraints on how we read chapter 3. Well, Peter's talking about something that's going to happen. 
very soon. He says there is coming an advent of the Lord that is going to fulfill the promises that Jesus made about the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. Now, now what I just gave you, that little survey of 2 Peter, that's a $2 summary of, uh, of Peter Lightheart's great book on 2 Peter, which I commend to you. If you think, well, what about this or what about that? Well, check out, check out his book. It's really, uh, really good. The Promise of His Appearing is, uh, is uh, Lightheart's book on 2 Peter. And so that's my footnote to everything I've said in the last 10 minutes. Uh, but what, what Peter's uh, audience lacked, what the Apostle Peter's audience lacked was a mature patient perspective on the way that God moves. Their impatience and, and even their mockery is born out of an ignorance of the way that God has typically worked throughout history. They're not using the same measuring stick that God is using, and the result is disaster. The result of conversion errors like that is typically disaster. And so that you and I grow with respect to God's clock and God's calendar, I want to set two virtues before us very quickly this morning, set two virtues before us that the scriptures speak of with respect to how our Father matures us in time and through history. And I want to focus first on the virtue of patience. And I'm going to do this quickly. So I'm going to do this very impatiently as I lay this out and very try to do this quickly. The first thing that we grow in and seek to grow in as we, as we develop a Christian perspective of time is patience. Notice that in the Bible, nothing ever begins and ends in the lifetime of one man. God never begins something and completes it with one person. Moses gets the people out of Egypt, but Joshua takes them into the land. Elijah begins the work of renewal and revival for Israel. Elisha finishes it. David collects the materials for the temple. Solomon builds the temple. Jesus initiates the new covenant, but he ascends to the Father. The Holy Spirit descends, and he and the apostles work together to finish the work that Jesus started. Abraham has promised that in him all the nations of the world will be blessed, but when is that promise fulfilled? Well, the nearest fulfillment of that promise is when Joseph feeds the nations four generations later. This is how God works. He works through multiple men and multiple generations over a long period of time. But you and I are like, we're like children. We don't have the long view. We don't think in long terms. One of the reasons is that we have such short lives and it's hard for us. But secondly, it's because that even though God has stretched out history for us to read and understand, we don't think of it as being instructional in that way. God works things out through generations. He plants seeds in one generation, he waters them in the next, and he gives the increase in the next. The kingdom works its way through the kingdom of men like leaven. We don't like to hear that because we want to do things and we want instant results. We want results now. We are in every respect the now generation. Give me the payoff immediately. And we get frustrated when the payoff doesn't come immediately. We know what we want and we want it now, but more often than God, God's answer to that is not now, but no. You can't have that right now. He tells us no, not because he's mean to us, but because we need to hear no. Patience is developed when we're promised a good thing, but we can't have it. And we're told no. Hebrews chapter 6 uh, speaks directly to this. Um, in verse 12, <clears throat> 
the uh, author of Hebrews says, don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise after patient endurance. Patience is cultivated in me and in you when we're forced to wait for a good thing or when we ask for a good thing and the answer is no or not yet or not right now. We don't practice patience waiting on something bad or sinful or forbidden. God says don't murder. That doesn't mean, well, wait patiently until you're allowed to murder or, or wait patiently until you're allowed to steal. No, 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 that's not it at all. Patience is the fruit of waiting for something good that we can have someday. I've already referenced my son once and I'll, I won't do it again for a few weeks, but if my, if my 10 year old asks me for keys to the car to go out on the weekend, why son? Well, I wanna meet a pretty girl and maybe uh, get married and settle down and maybe start a family. The answer to that is no, not because those are bad things. The answer to that is no, because you're not mature enough right now to do any of that. You need to pick up your room first and then we'll see uh, what comes next. The, 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 the answer no is not because these are bad things, but because you need to grow up, you need to develop. It's no, it's not no, not ever, it's no, not right now. And so our children need to hear the word no. Kids, you need to hear the word no. No is a great word. It sets boundaries, helpful, safe boundaries. Sometimes parents, I know because you've told me, it feels like some days you don't say anything but no. It feels like that's the only word in your vocabulary and your kids, the first word they learn is what? No, <laughs> right? Because they learn it because they hear it so often. That's not a bad thing. Uh, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to say no all day and you feel like it's not getting any better, but settle in and be patient. That's your job to set boundaries. You are teaching your children patience. You are setting them boundaries. Do you like to be around children who've never been told no? Are those your favorite kids to be around? You've seen them at the park. You've seen them on the baseball team, right? The, the kids who've never been told no. You don't, like, you don't like being around those kids. And you've been around adults who've never been told no as well, haven't you? And they're not the best people to be around. They can't, they, they've never been trained in patience. They can't think in long-term periods at all. They just think in the red-faced veins popping now. I want it now. And when they're told no, they melt down and they can't deal with it. Patience, however, children of God, patience is a virtue that cannot be bestowed on you. Patience is not something you will get from a book. Patience is not something that we can go to the doctor and get an IV and, and, and it gets downloaded into our system. Patience can only be gained through time. It can only be earned. Patience only grows through a lifetime course of instruction in frustration and aggravation and being told no. And so if you chafe against the Lord's answers when he says no, you won't grow and you won't develop and you won't mature. 
submit to his no, and you will grow in patience as, and wisdom. That's, that's how you enter into God's perspective of time and history. That's how you get the long view and maturation and patience. Oh, secondly, let me move to the second one. The second virtue is timeliness. The apostles, uh, Peter's uh, audience was chafing under God's timing. They believed that they had, a, they had a far better handle on when these things ought to unfold. Of course, they were wrong because God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is flawless. And if we were godly, we would grow in God's sense of timing and his timeliness. The Bible has a fair amount of instruction on timeliness. If we had more time, we'd go back to uh, Ecclesiastes 3 and see that there's a time to uh, uh, build and there's a time to tear down. There's a, there's a time for, um, without, without trying to mangle it and misquote it, um, uh, there's a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. It instructs us that we live in time and our lives take us through a variety of circumstances. We live in a sequential life, not an eternal now. And as a result, timing is important. Knowing what to do in what order, what is wise now, what might be wiser tomorrow, how might I speak today, how might I hold my tongue, these are all evidences of wisdom and maturity and Christ's likeness and sharing in his timeliness. And again, you gain a sense of timing through experience. You aren't born with it. A person in a state of immaturity has no sense of timing. I'm sure you can think back to things you did as a teenager and you die inside when you think about something you said or something you did. Maybe you did the right thing, but at the wrong time. Well, maybe what you did wasn't wrong, but it certainly wasn't sensitive. You weren't acting with awareness of your surroundings or sensitivity to the people around you. And the reason that you die inside now is because you'd never do it that way today. You'd never do it that way again. You've grown in your sense of timing and uh, and and your, your sense of propriety. Romans 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Have you ever been around someone trying to make a, a grieving person feel better with a joke or try to cheer them up? And that's not what Paul says do, that's bad timing. H have you ever seen the other side where somebody's really enjoying something thoroughly, rejoicing and someone else comes along like a Debbie Downer and tells them something depressing about why they shouldn't enjoy the thing that they're enjoying? Becoming sensitive to timing is critical to our maturity and development. The Bible emphasizes that there is a right time for things and not everything is valid or useful every time. Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable and he says, when you go to a feast, take the lowest seat. Don't sit at the head of the table at the place of honor. And if the timing is right, the master will invite you to come up. It's much better to be invited up than to be sent down rudely. And so you know that if you esteem others more highly than yourself, you know there's a time in life for everything. I'm going to wait to be called on. Not only, not only do we ask the question, is this right? But we ask the question, is this the right time for this? So my purpose here in this Advent is, is to consider these things and, and try to start to get a glimpse, some concept of a, of a biblical 
perspective on history and time and to know what it means for us to come into the church. It means to step out of the world of secularism and paganism, come away from the changeless and the static world, come away from the eternal now, where now reigns, where no is never heard, where patience is never cultivated, and to step into the realm where we readily acknowledge that, that God is working and changing everything and he's growing us up into a fit bride for his son, a realm where we trust fully in a future where God will be pleased to fill the earth with his glory and we rest in hope of those promises. We don't chafe, we don't get frustrated, we don't get angry, we don't get hateful when we hear no, when we hear wait, we rejoice and we delight to be patient and we wait for the coming of the Lord in all the ways that he is coming to us. We trust the one holding the stopwatch. We trust the one setting the schedule. We don't drive ourselves mad with frustration. We don't give up. We don't mock as Peter's audience did. We don't abandon the faith like Peter's audience was close to getting. No, we trust, we obey day in, day out, waiting on God to give the increase. Let's pray. Father, we praise you again for your word and we ask you to continue to grow us up. We are young and we are uh, so small and our lives are so short. Our days indeed are like a handbreadth. Uh, we pray that you would mature us. We pray that you would teach us how to wait, that you would grow us up into a sense of your timing uh, so that we may be uh, fit and, uh, and faithful in all these ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now let us continue worshiping our God by bringing his tithe.